0: You're listening to the New City Church Sermon Podcast. We exist to love God, to love our neighbors, and to make known the good news of Jesus Christ. To this end, we seek to cultivate a spirit-filled, gospel-centered community that multiplies disciples of Jesus and churches for the glory of God, the joy of all people, and the good of the city. If you'd like to learn more about New City, including service times, discipleship pathways, and opportunities to serve and fellowship with us, please visit us online at newcitykc.org. So if you have a Bible, turn with it to Malachi uh, chapter 3, the last book of the Old Testament right before Matthew. We're going to look at Malachi chapter 3 starting in verse 6 this morning. Uh, Continuing our series, we have a couple more weeks in coffee mug verses, these verses that might be really familiar to some of us if you've been around the church or been around the Bible at all, Um, and these great verses that we don't want to um, kind of make fun of, but we want to say, hey, there's a lot of power and beauty and promise in these verses, but often they're taken out of context. Um, And so this morning, we're going to be looking at another one of those that might be fairly fairly familiar uh, to us that relates to tithing and giving and and all that. So I was hoping to have three offerings this morning, but um, the deacons didn't go for that. Um, But that's here or there. Um, So if you have a Bible, Malachi chapter three, we'll start in verse six. I'll just read to the end there. So Malachi chapter three, verse six says, "'For I, the Lord, do not change. "'Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. "'From the days of your father, "'you have turned aside from my statutes "'and have not kept them. "'Return to me, and I will return to you,' "'says the Lord of hosts. "'But you say, how shall we return? "'Will man rob God? "'Yet you are robbing me. "'But you say, how have we robbed you?' "'In your tithes and contributions. "'You are cursed with the curse, "'for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you.'" Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test," says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I rebuke and devour. I rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field, shall not fail to bear says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of your keeping his charge or walking in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they will put God to the test and they escape. This is the word of God, excuse me, for us uh, this morning. And so we've been looking at these, these coffee cup verses and one of the threads hopefully you've seen that's kind of woven through all of these weeks has been context, right? Context is king that if we take these verses and we kind of pull them out of their context, they don't make sense. They actually lose their power. They lose their beauty. They, they lose um, their promise to them. So we looked at uh, Matt preached a couple weeks ago on Philippians 4.13, that great Tim Tebow verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me as you're on the squat rack and you're just like with your Philippians 4 on your eyeballs, how do I get another, right? And as I run through the tunnel, I can do all things. But if you read that verse in its context, it's about Paul talking about contentment. I've learned to be content when I had a lot. I've learned to be content when I had nothing. So I can do all things through Christ because knowing I know what it's like to have a lot, I know what it's like to have a little, and I know that God is with me the entire way. We looked at another uh, text in Jeremiah 29, verse uh, 11, that great graduation text, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, a hope and a future, as Michael W. Smith Friends plays in the background, but not reading the context that Israel's been on a 70-year timeout because of their sin for worshiping false gods. And to say, actually, the blessing and the promise and the hope is about living among a people that don't believe what you believe, that don't value what you value, and looking at the long game saying, hey, get married, have families, plant gardens, it's going to be a long road, it's going to be painful, but as you seek the welfare of the city, as you seek its blessing, you will be blessed. Your prosperity and hope doesn't come from just a blanket, just trust in God and, you know, just get a Ferrari, but it's actually as you seek the good of others, you'll experience that blessing. And so this morning, as we look at Malachi chapter three, it's one of those verses where it makes this promise. There's a uh, there's an accusation against Israel, saying, "Hey, you're you're holding back gifts, you're holding back tithes to God, you're you're holding back your contributions." But but test me so that the windows of heaven will be open and blessing will come down to you. Now I don't know how many times you've heard this verse or heard this verse preached or. Um, it's a great thermometer verse. I don't know if you've ever seen, you know, the pastor of the church, they're trying to raise funds for the church and they got this big thermometer, right? Um, Usually Malachi 3 is in there somewhere just saying, you know, if you give, God will give, right? It's just this this kind of reciprocal thing. If you tithe, if you give, if you're generous, then God will be generous back to you. He'll open up the gates of heaven and all these good things will fall on you. Well, I think, again, it's important for us to look at the context to understand, well, what does exactly Malachi mean here? Does this just mean if I'm faithful, God will be faithful? I give so that I'll get back? Or is it something else that's going on? Now, in the, in the context of Malachi, God is coming to this prophet, and he's, he's, this is 100 years after Babylon, Babylonian exile, so a little bit of what we talked about in Jeremiah 29. And the people have come back out of exile. They've come to Jerusalem. They've come back to their homeland, and things aren't going well. And they're beginning to question God's faithfulness. They're they're beginning to question God's blessing, right? Where are you? What what is going on here? And Malachi has to address that to say, hey, you need to be patient. You need to trust me in this. The things don't always go well. Circumstances aren't always great but I want to continue to pour out blessing on you because you are my people. And like Israel, like us, how impatient are we, right? I want it now. I want to see results now, right? <clears throat> I want this to be changed now. I want this to be fixed now. I want my kids to be this way now. I want my spouse to be this way now I want the job to be this way now. And yet God continually reminds them to be patient and trust that my promises will come through. In the end, I never break my promises, so with that as the backdrop, <clears throat> let's look at this text about giving and tithing and blessing and opening up heaven and say, okay, what does this really mean in its context? And first, we need to look at the accusation that's being made here. The accusation is that, that Israel is first, hopefully you saw that, but is robbing God of their of his tithes and offerings. It's, it's not giving its all to God that's been required of them, that's been commanded to them. They're holding back what belongs to to God. We saw that in in verse uh, 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, but you say how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? It's very clear. That's the rebuke here. That's the accusation here. Now, what's interesting about Malachi is if you go back to chapter 1, there's also an accusation against the priests because in a very similar way, the priests, the people that were to be the mediators between God and his people are also holding back from God. They're actually giving lame offerings To God. So we talked in the Leviticus series about these offerings, right, of produce and cattle and animals that were to be their worship to God. But notice what it says in in chapter 1, verse 6. Actually, I'll go down to verse 7. By offering polluted food upon my altar, but you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? So the first accusation is actually to the leadership of the church saying, you're bringing lame duck offerings, maybe even literally, to the Lord. These ducks that are not pure, these cattle that aren't pure, these animals that aren't pure, it's half-hearted worship. And this is to the leadership, right? It's like you're supposed to be the mediator of God. You're supposed to show the people what worship is like. And worship is, God, you have been generous and gracious and good to us. Why would we not give you our best? Oh, here's." Betsy, the cow who has a broken leg. Is that the best that we can have? Right? They know how this is supposed to work. They know the commands of God. And yet, they're offering polluted and sick and lame worship before a holy God. And what's interesting about worship, I think it's important, is sometimes we think about worship, our own worship, our worship of God in all of life and Sundays and all of life as just me and God, right? But notice what? Malachi says in chapter one, verse 14, right at the end of the chapter, he says, cursed be the cheat who has has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices the Lord what is blemished. Again, calling out these lame acts of worship. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Did you catch it? Part of our worship is for the watching world, for the nations, for those that aren't part of us. It's what would a church look like that gives half-hearted worship? If somebody's interested in the faith or curious about the faith, and they look in and go like, these people don't really care, right? They just kind of give lame worship. They're not that committed. They just kind of show up to church when they want, just do what they want to do, kind of, you know, whatever. And it's there's not this commitment of, I love God because uh, all he's done for me, there's a very evident reality to us being in his orbit. What would that look like to a watching world, that our worship has this missional bent to it? that it's not just for us, between us and God, but it's also for those that would be curious about what this thing is. It always has an outward-looking face to it. Because if I was to see a, a priest walk in and, and go, oh, here's my, you know, three-legged cattle, going, I don't think you guys take God very seriously. Like, he's given you everything, and yet you're just kind of giving him back leftovers, Right? And we all struggle with this, right? Like to give over leftovers, it's human nature, right? To just give enough to just get by, right? I mean, I was—I had seasons in school, I was just a terrible student and it was always just like, how do I get do enough just to get by, right? How do I know just to like pass the test? Anybody been there, right? All of you are good students, you bunch of nerds, but um, right, we've all been there, right? We do it in sports, we do it in school, we do it in our job sometimes, right? We just kind of give the leftovers. But in all of life, not just Sunday morning, not just when we read our Bibles, but when I go to work, am I giving God leftovers? You know, here's my little sad offering. Um, am I giving my all? Am I doing this to glorify God and say, hey, maybe I don't have ideal situation. I don't have ideal the ideal circumstances, but but here's my best, here's my offering. And so there's a accusation to the priests who are giving half-hearted worship. But then we get to that second big accusation, as I mentioned already in verse six of chapter three, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you or children of Jacob are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse for you're robbing me the whole nation of you. Now, I find it interesting here, and some people debate, you know, are they, is God concerned with the, the specific thing they're doing, or is this just a general kind of heart test here? I think you can kind of read it both ways. We can say we're committed to God. We can say we love God, but then God goes, well, let me look at your checkbook. <laughs> let me look at the balance in your bank and say, where does your money go, Right? So here's these people, they've been commanded by God when your produce comes in, when your cattle comes in, give 10%, that's a tithe, that means 10. And yet, what, what are they doing? They're holding back some of this. That's why later in verse 10, it says, give me the full tithe into the storehouse, right? So somehow they're they're not taking the 10 off the top. They're just taking maybe five or, or three or two. It's just like, oh, I'll just keep a little bit for my myself. They're not giving their all. They're not giving all of their, their worship. But here's the thing about holding back. You know, there's one thing to steal from God, right? Just the command to not steal. But there's another thing of stealing of what's already belongs to God. We're keeping it for ourselves. That's the accusation here is I've blessed you. Like, like, here's what's interesting. This is where we kind of go off the rails because I think we live in this digital age and it's hard. It's not tangible. We're even moving away just because, you know, when we take an offering, right, and there's not a lot of cash, not a lot of checks. It's very tangible. You kind of can feel it, right? But now it's like money's weird because it's like in a bank somewhere and we don't really see it and we don't really feel it or touch it. But you imagine in the ancient world, right, their bank was and their, their uh, giving was animals, right? You can see them, feel them, smell them, God forbid, right? Like you would go out into your yard and go, okay, I got to give, you know, 10% of all the cattle, right? That's going to be hurt. That's going to hurt my bottom line. I got to give 10% of all my plants. Like that's going to, I'm going to feel that, right? This is this is God's sustenance to them. This was God's provision to them. So you can imagine they're visibly seeing this every single day. There goes 10%. There goes 10%. There goes 10%, right? And so instead of going, okay, I'm going to trust God to refill and provide the rest, they're saying, I'm just going to give you part of it, right? And yet, who's the one that provided for them in the first place? Who's the one that even gave them the ability to have these animals, to take care of these animals, to grow these these crops? Who made the sun, and who made the rain, and who gave them the soil, right? It's so easy for us to forget that God is even the giver of those things, it's your ability to make money, your ability to have a job, to have a mind that works, and hands that work, and legs that work, and, and you can reason, and you can get things done. Like Even to be able to do that is a gift of grace to you, right? And yet, here's our half-hearted worship. They're holding back, they're robbing from God. It's a little bit of the, you remember the story in Acts 5 when Ananias and Sapphira hold back from God? So early churches forming, and, and they're giving all their stuff away, and they're Providing for those in need, and Ananias and Sapphira get, sell this property, right? And they hold back from God, and then God kills them, right? So I still struggle with that text. Like, but it was early on, right? It was early on in the church. God's making a point there. He, he, he's saying, why are you robbing God? Like, everybody knows you made all this money on this property, and yet you're giving leftovers back to God at the apostles' feet. And it's so easy for us to do that, right? It's so easy for us to hold back. And when we think of tithes and offerings, these in the Old Testament, it was commanded, you know, again, give your produce, give your flocks, give your cattle. You know, when those come in and, and it's time, you know, the, the uh, you know, grain is being harvested, give 10% right off the top, right back to God, being obviously it was commanded to God. But here's where it gets tricky. Here's where it gets really tricky is that God doesn't need our money. God is God. He's not lacking anything. Like you ever think on that just for a minute? <laughs> like he doesn't need animals, he doesn't need food, he's not hungry, <laughs> right? So why does he need why does he need us to give? Why does he want us to give? Because I really believe that the scripture teaches it's really not about the act of giving. It's really about where our hearts are in light of God how we see him and understand his character and his nature. It's a response to God, right? And that's where like in in chapter three, when he says, he starts with this immutability for I, the Lord do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob are not consumed. In other words, he's like, I don't change. I'm always good. I'm always gracious. I'm always merciful. When he calls him Jacob, he's going back to Abraham and reminding them of the promises of God, right? I'm a God who blesses. I'm a God who loves you. This isn't about money and cattle and produce. It's about me, the God who always keeps his promises, who's always gracious, who's always kind, who always provides all of your needs. I don't change ever. And that's a good thing, right? Like God's mercy and his love doesn't change. Now, his response and actions towards us can change. And that's why when we get to verse seven, what does he say? Return to me, repent, <laughs> convert. I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? And it goes into the tithing offering. He's saying, hey, I, I want you back. I want to be in relationship with you. I want to be in fellowship with you. That's what this is about. It's not about dollars and cents. It's about relationship with the God of creation and the God of the universe. That's what I'm after. And giving just a small way that reveals, are you really with me? Are you against me? Because here's why, church. Math doesn't lie. It just doesn't. Like, you can say two plus two is four. I know we live in a post-modern world. Actually, it could be five. It could be, you know, whatever. But it just doesn't lie. Like, we can look at our checkbook. We can look at the money in the account. And we can see where we spend our money. And it just doesn't lie. It reveals where our hearts lie, right? It's just math. Like, we can try to negate that. We go, yeah, but you don't understand. You don't understand my situation. You don't, right? Okay. Believe me, I've been there. I do it all the time, <laughs> But he's saying, I just want you. I'm after you. I want you to experience my blessings, my presence, my love in your life. It has very little actually to do with the giving part. But the giving part is a great revealer of where we are before you, right? If you don't see my generosity, you're not going to be generous. If you don't see my grace, you're not going to be gracious. Enough. If you don't see my love, you're not going to be very loving to anyone else, Right? And so that's where he's he's going. This return, this call to repentance, this this call to conversion, is it, it's about seeing this God who's honorable, so we honor Him. It's about seeing a God who maintains unity because He's a God of unity. It's a, it's about a God who says, "I want you to to love the unlovable, love those that are in a tough spot because He's a just God." It's to serve humbly and patiently and trustingly because God is trustworthy, right? See how that works reciprocally? Reciprocally? can I, I can't even say the word. So there's, to that point, there's also not only this accusation that God makes really clear, they're holding back, they're robbing God, but also this revelation. The, the revelation, what I just mentioned, is this, this revealing of our hearts before God. That God definitely cares about their giving, definitely cares about their tithing, but again, to say, well, where are you at? Do you really love me? Do you, are you really all in? Are you committed to this thing? Are you, do you want to experience my promises? Do you want to experience um, my blessing? And, and this is where, again, it gets a little bit tricky because when you get down to like, if you go back to like Psalm, um, I'll give you an, one example here in Psalm 51. Always another confounding, or Psalm 50, excuse me, confounding text, verse seven. Hear, O people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. Remember, God commanded God's people to give burnt offerings to God and all kinds of offerings. So he's commanding them to do this. But this is where it gets confusing, Right? I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fold. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle in a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh or bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the most high. And call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and shall glorify me. Super confusing text. Do you want to, us to give an offering or not? Yes, but it never was about the actual offering. What he's saying here is, I want you to give a Thanksgiving offering. I don't care. I'm not hungry. I'm not lacking. I own everything. That's not the point. This is not to work your way up to me. This isn't to make me happy. What I want is your heart because here's what a little, little hint, a little detail. The thanksgiving offering was the only offering where you sat in the presence of God and ate the food before God. What does that say? I want fellowship with you. I want you to feast with me, enjoy my presence. That's what this thing is all about. The thanksgiving offering was the only one where you took a portion of the offering and you ate it before God like you would eat it before a worthy king. That was the point that was the point. God is worthy. He's a worthy king. And so we eat in front of him because he goes, I'm inviting you into the palace. I'm inviting you into my presence. That's what giving is for. It's not to earn God's favor. It's not to get back blessing, but to say, hey, I've given you this as a barometer to say, do you want to enjoy me and be with me? and to enjoy the promises I've made to you through Abraham and ultimately through Christ. Because I own everything. I'm not lacking anything, right? God's not going just like, I'm so hungry, so hangry right now. Father, son, can you go Uber something? Because it's just, I am dying here, right? God's never said that. So it must. Thank you, Courtney, for your laughter. I appreciate that. At least someone finds it humorous. But it's never been about that. It's to say, are you thankful? Do you understand who I am and what I've done for you? I own it all. I'm with you. I love you. The giving's just a response to the God who's already been eternally merciful and gracious and faithful to us. And so this has obviously been a widespread problem to Israel. We see that in verse 9. The entire nation's being called to repentance. Um, this isn't just one person, you know, having a bad day and holding back, you know, their lame duck, you know, cattle, whatever it is, or. But it's it's a it's a whole problem, and the, and again, the context is they they've come out of exile. They're wondering what's going on here. Circumstances aren't great. They're starting to become unfaithful. They're starting to go like, I don't know about this God. Like it just seems like you promise all these things, and we're just kind of languishing here. How easy it is, right? How easy it is in those moments in your life to not give to God because money's really, really tight. You ever been there? And going, I mean, geez, I feel like I'm working my tail off, you know, and the money's just not there. When my wife and I were uh, early uh, married, you might have heard what we call affectionately uh, the love shack. And the love shack was our first home as a married couple. It was this little guest house next to a man with a giant poodle. Um, and he was a funny man. Um, and he used to come over and talk to me and i tried try to avoid him just because it was going to be like a three-hour conversation. Um, but, a, but a very gracious man. And he, we, we had this love shack and uh, the, the refrigerator was in the bathroom, if that tells you how uh, small it was. Uh, so you could do your business and make a sandwich. It was a nice uh, situation. Now, my wife didn't think that was a nice situation, but for a bachelor, that was a nice situation. Uh, it's like, man, just kill two birds with one stone. Uh, it's too much information, I know. Uh, but that's how it was. No money, doing ministry, co- Christie's finishing up college, just kind of, you know, and there were these moments that I would wrestle time and time again. How are we supposed to give anything when we have nothing, right? We've all felt it at times, right? It's like, how, how am I supposed to do this? And I can tell you and this, this, with all sincerity, for 22 years of marriage, Especially, at least in my married life, that giving—we've never gone without. <laughs> as hard as it's been, saying, "God, I don't know how you're supposed to come through and provide what I'm lacking," but I'm giving this to you, even though we have, you know, two nickels to run to get to rub together. <laughs> but God has always blessed in that way when we've said, "It's—I've seen all that you are. I've seen all that you've done for us. I've seen your mercies and your love. I'm not going to rob you of this." thing right and it's hard it's not easy and it's not even about a particular dollar amount but to say hey when this money comes in this is yours god like it belongs to you everything i have is because of you my whole life is a picture of grace now i wish i had more time just because I, I need to get to the end at this uh, some point before it's noon but um but there is the elephant in the room, and, and I think it's a good question, and the church has wrestled with this for a lot of years, is is, tithe, is a tithe commanded in the scriptures? Like, do we have to give 10% of our income? Now, here's where it gets, gets confusing, because in the Old Testament, it seems like a tithe is commanded. We we're just looking at this text, God's mad about the tithe, that's 10% off the top, right? But actually, you could look at the Old Testament giving pattern and say, actually, a tithe is kind of the starting point. Because if you add up all the offerings and all the other things they were supposed to give, it's well beyond 10% of their income, right? This is like huge sacrificial giving. So I think there's one point we have to kind of deal with, right? And then in the New Testament, we don't have anything explicitly saying you must give a tithe. But I think because of on being on this side of Christ, a tithe is a starting point but shouldn't be the ending point. If we've seen the generosity of God in Christ who lived and died and rose again, right, who's given his life for us, I don't think we shouldn't give less than a tithe, should we? <laughs> it's like, well, Jesus come and is redeeming all things, and we're in a relationship with him, is forgiven us our sins, the wrath of God's been removed, but you know what, here's a nickel. Like all of the Old Testament, all of the offerings, all those things were pointing to the Messiah that was going to come. So, so how, do we, how do we deal with that? Again, I think a tithe is a good starting point. It's 10%. I don't. We don't know the history of why is it 10%, but I know when you give 10%, you feel it, right? It actually alters your lifestyle in a little way, unless you're, you know, I know some of you are billionaires, so it's like, oh, money, you know, what's that, right? Uh, I know some of you, you know, own Amazon stock. I get it. But 10%, you start to feel it, right? You have to kind of like reorder your life a little bit, right? You, you maybe can't go to Chick-fil-A that third time this week, You know, uh, it begins. You begin to see it in the bank account, right? And and so, so I don't know if that's the magic of it. I don't know, but I mean, again, that's a good starting point, right? Because in the New Testament, we see in uh, the book of Acts, especially. That they caught this vision of giving and generosity. And again, it doesn't get into like exactly how much they gave, and you know, were they given a tithe or whatever, but I imagine that was at least a starting point, being a lot of you know, Jewish men and women coming to faith, knowing the Old Testament well. So, like in Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves, 42, to the apostles' teaching. All came out in every soul, and then you get down to 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as in any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread together. You jump over to chapter 4. Now the full number of those in verse 32 who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. They caught this vision of a generous God that makes us generous, right? And notice where the money goes, it goes to the apostles' feet. It stays in the church community. Now, that doesn't mean we don't give above and beyond outside the church. No. My wife and I give all to all kinds of things outside the church. But there is something Old Testament, it always stayed in the community of faith. It was given to the priests, the offerings, so they would lay it before God. It stayed in the family of faith. In the New Testament, it's the same idea. But I think if we're a generous people, we don't just stop with the church. We say, well, how can I be a blessing outside the four walls? How can I give to kingdom-minded ministries and gospel ministries and other kind of ministries that are doing good in the world, right? There's all kinds of things that we should be giving to. We should just have a posture of generosity that we should constantly be asking, how can I give more, not less? Not less. Like, how many of us? Like, and I don't hear this enough. And again, I don't want to be, you know, a Baptist guy up here. Um, I'm not trying to guilt or shame you by any means, sorry Baptist, but how many of us actually ask the question, hey honey, if you call your wife honey, if you have a wife, <laughs> give some context, <laughs> who's honey, that's just calling random people honey, um, what's our plan to become more generous as a family, is that on anywhere's, anybody's radar? Not how can we accumulate more? How can we build bigger stuff? How can we get a better job, right? How can we go on more vacations? But hey, as a follower of, as Jesus, how can we be more generous, right? And I'm not saying none of us are doing this, but I know for me, that's that's a big challenge to say, hey, this needs to be part of our orbit, Right? Not how do we do more things and experience more of life, but how do we give more away? Like that should be our goal. Like paying debt should be, I want to get out of debt. Why? So I can be more generous. (laughs) Not so I can have more money in the bank and that's great and we need to save and that's all good, right? But as followers of Jesus to say, there are people in need in our church, there are people in need in our community and in the world. How can we be more generous? They've done studies. This is where I get a little disappointed at myself and others and Christians um, in general, and not to be judgmental. Again, I probably sound judgmental. I'm not meaning to be. But they've done studies. In the last 50 years, as our incomes go up, we don't proportionally give more to gospel ministries of the church. So we're getting paid more and more and more every year. We've made more money than sometimes even our own parents, and yet the percentage of our giving has not gone up. It stays, <laughs> right? Right? the more you make as an individual or as a family percentage-wise, it rarely goes up in our giving, right? So instead of living off what of maybe what we had before, we're okay and giving more, right? We don't. We give less. Percentage matters, right? If the church, the Christian people around the globe, just tithed at a, on a general level, the whole world would change. Poverty would go away. We would plant churches and bring the gospel to probably every corner of the world just by Christians giving a tithe. But we don't. Across the board, we don't. It's a lot less than what you would think. Now, that doesn't mean Christians aren't generous. By any means, we're a very generous church, and I love it. We're trying to tithe actually 20% out of this place. And we started the church this way. There's no reason we should have done that. But I just had this deep-seated conviction, not just individuals giving, but also as a church to say, how do we give the money out of this place? That's why we don't have lasers and smoke. That's why sometimes our slides don't work. <laughs> right? Right? I'd rather give money away to other people and other things and plant more churches and support more ministry and and to bless our city and our world than have lasers and smoke up here and for me to come down from the ceiling on chains, right? We don't need that, right? There's plenty of churches doing that well. We don't need a $9 million mortgage. We don't even have a mortgage, right? That's all intentional. I'm not bragging here, but this is why we do ministry the way we do in a simple way is because we want to give more than what we take in. It's a huge conviction for me and the leadership here. Again, not brag. I'm not trying to get you to come in and, you know, give more and sit in the seats. I don't care. But as followers of Jesus, this should just be normal Christianity. Like, what I'm saying here this morning shouldn't be abnormal. Like, we shouldn't be like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is why I don't go to church, talking about giving, right? It should just be the posture of our hearts and the posture of our lives to say, how do I give more than I receive, Right? I'm going to let you in on a little dirty secret, and I hate sharing this because it's always disappointing. I still think about this, and it makes me mad. When I was raising money for New City Church, preaching around the country, talking to individuals, talking to churches, I had this conviction that if I go to the wealthiest people I know, we'll fund this thing in four seconds. The wealthiest people I know gave hardly anything. It was the grandmas and the individuals that were scraping by that funded this ministry that you're a part of the faithful, sacrificial givers. It's always disappointing. I'm not to say there aren't generous, wealthy people by any means, but as our income goes up, guess what? We're not as excited to give the things that maybe don't exist yet, right? It's those, and that's how our church has been. We've never had sugar mamas or sugar daddies here. (laughs) Just everyday, ordinary disciples just faithfully giving year after year after year. And it's so true. Marcus can attest to this. Anyone that's had to raise money, it's always like, like, well, that guy, he's definitely you know invested in Amazon, and he's a Christian. He, he sure, certainly will give us lots of money, and they're like, here's $4 in a handshake. But I loved going to that grandma who's like, I don't, And even people that surprised me, Andy can attest to this, people that just totally <laughs> blew us away by like giving money month after month, and they had no reason to, and really no ability to. And yet they did it, and they continue to do it, many people. Because I think that's the picture of Mark 12, and then we'll um, we'll land the plane here. Um, when I think of an, a picture of what this giving looks like, this kind of posture of generosity, um, it's Mark 12. At the end of Mark, um, at the end of the chapter, this widow, it says, and he sat down, Jesus, opposite the treasury, and watched the people putting money into the money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which made a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box for they all contributed out of their abundance but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This says penny, it's actually a denarii, which a denarii was a, a year's wage. She'd seen the mercies of God. She'd seen the grace of God. She'd seen the love of God. And she gave out of her poverty, not out of her abundance. When we give out of abundance, we don't feel it, right? It's just like the leftovers, it's just the scraps, like in the Old Testament offerings. All this money coming in, I give you four bucks, even though I, you know, I make 90,000 a year. It's like, here you go, right? But she's seeing God for this generous God, seeing his mercy, seeing his love, seeing something in this Jesus. And she's like, I'm giving everything I have. To him, and God was pleased in that. Now, if we have a lot of money, that's not the question here. The, 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 the conversation is not, do you have a lot of money or little? It's, what do we do with what we have, <laughs> right? Do we really feel it? Do we really give in such a way that it alters our lifestyle, or is it just another appendage to what we're already doing? And that's a hard question I can't answer for you, but I, I would just encourage you, church, as we get to the Lord's Supper here, Maybe tithing's like not a thing. Like you didn't grow up that way. You never thought of that. But I just, again, it's just math. It's a great place to start. And maybe you can't get to a tithe right now. That's fine. Maybe it's one. Hey, I don't give anything. Maybe it's starting with 1%. And each year going to two, going to three, going to four. And I don't want to tell you what to do. I'm not telling you how you should do this. But I think it's a good challenge for all of us to look at our income and go like, could we give a little, like one more percent? Why couldn't we? Right? I mean, we, we tend to like Chick-fil-A a lot. Sheesh. We just knock that down a little bit. We could give to all kinds of stuff, right? Henry's pumping his arms. Um, but right, if we actually got serious and looked at our budgets and go like, well, geez, I sure do give a lot to, you know, yoga <laughs> or whatever, right, to the gym. Like, I, I don't know what your thing is, but that's a good challenge, right, to say, hey, I'm here. Why not go a little bit further? Um, Richard challenged us a few weeks ago to put Richard on the spot, one of our deacons, who's just a financial wizard. And um, he just said, hey, I know we've all gotten with pandemic kind of gotten complacent and it's easy to do to like revisit our income and just go like, okay, maybe we need to, you know, not make our income just come directly out of our bank accounts. Maybe we need to go like, well, how much am I giving? Could I give more? Should we give more, right? And again, this is not law, this is not the guilt or shaming, this is not a, you know, we're not gonna have pass the offering. Don't worry, everyone got nervous. Here's the offering, here's why I don't go to church, right? No. <clears throat> but the Jesus lens, sing giving through the Jesus lens is this. When we look at 2 Corinthians 8, and we see the God who was generous to us, the God who was rich and became poor for us, what Paul says. When we see this God who came for us, who came to redeem us, who came, who gave his all for us, who had everything going in the glories and perfections of heaven, yet came to us in an act of eternal generosity, how can we go, here's a nickel? (laughs) Maybe we haven't seen the gospel in its fullness yet. Maybe we haven't seen God in his generosity and his grace towards you yet. If, if our response is, here's my leftovers. And so even Paul in the, in the New Testament wants to motivate us by the gospel, not guilt and shame for us. That's why we don't have series here on giving, right? Like this is, a, this is a, a, one of the few sermons I've ever done on giving. And that's intentional. you know why? Because I really believe in my bones that if you preach the gospel and you preach about a generous God, the response is always going to be generosity. I don't need to guilt and shame in you and telling you how much you need to give. It's when you encounter this merciful God, when you encounter this gracious God, the overflow is always generosity. So I don't need to yell and scream at you, even though I'm yelling and screaming at you right now but I want you to encounter the God who became nothing so that you could become rich in him. You already have everything you need. You have every spiritual blessing in Christ, so our response should always be, what's mine is yours. It's gonna require sacrifice. It's not gonna be easy, but that's how we continually become generous people It's gazing, meditating, reflecting on the God who became poor so that we could become rich in him the God who gave his life on the cross, who died so that we could live. My response, when I see that and I believe that and I walk in that and I feel that and I meditate on that and I go, whoa, I can't believe that should always be what's mine is yours.